a lot of you won't remember this, but there's an old cartoon called B.C. And it's about cavemen. And there's these two cavemen. One of them is named B.C. And the other one's Thor. And B.C. is sitting on a, a hill looking out. And he says, I hate the term Good Friday. And Thor standing behind him. He says, why? And B.C. says, my Lord was hanged on a tree that day. And Thor says, if you were going to be hanged on that day and he volunteered to take your place, how would you feel? And B.C. says, good. And Thor says, have a nice day. So that's why it's Good Friday. Jesus took your place. Let's pray. Jesus, I don't know that there's ever been a time that I feel adequate to to share your word because it's with fear and trembling, Lord, because we know that there are great consequences in sharing your word and distorting it and leading people away from the truth. But there's great blessing in sharing the truth the way the truth is, the real truth, Lord. So I just pray that you would touch my heart and the hearts of everyone here. And Lord, let us see you. Because in seeing you, we see the truth. And we ask in your name that you would lead us and guide us in all truth. Amen. I'm going to look at some different places in Scripture. But I'm going to start in a minute or two in Exodus 3. I want to talk about faith. And the Bible is constantly speaking to us about faith because it's the foundation of our redemption. It's the way in which we are justified by God. And just to be clear... Justification is a legal act of God for pardoning sinners, accepting them as just in their relationship with him. So God declares us just. It's a gift of God for righteousness for the sake of Jesus. It's important to know what faith is and what faith is not. Because if you get it wrong, we're in really big trouble. And saving faith, just to condense this, has three parts. The first part is believing in the information. You have to believe in something because it matters absolutely what you believe in. You have to believe in the right information. If you believe, or if you say that, I don't believe in gravity, if you jump off of a high building, that'll quickly show you that you've got the wrong information. You're believing in the wrong thing. (laughs) Secondly, you have to be persuaded of the truthfulness of what you believe in. Even if you're convinced in your mind that Jesus is the Son of God, 
that just puts you in the company of demons because they believe that too. So it's not enough to say you believe it because demons don't put their trust in him. Rather, they reject what they know to be true. And thirdly, the most vital element of saving faith is that of personal trust. This involves the intellectual, the mental, also the heart and the will of the, in other words, the whole person. True biblical faith is essential for salvation, but so often it's misunderstood in a way that hurts Christianity and Christians both. Faith is not opposed to knowledge. But so many people say it's just a great leap. You you don't have to have something you can see or know or anything like that. Gathering evidence for God and Christianity doesn't mean you don't have faith. God's not offended by true knowledge. He's the God of all truth. Some people that don't know what they're talking about have said that faith is believing the unbelievable, clinging to your convictions when all the evidence is against it. When you have doubts or troubles, just have faith. And what this does, this (coughs) reduces Christian convictions to religious, wishful thinking. We can hope, but we can never know. And this will never work. It's been said by some that the heart cannot believe that which the mind rejects. And there are a lot of people that seem to think that. If you're not confident the message of Scripture is actually true, you can't believe it even if you tried. The I just take Christianity on blind faith attitude cannot be the right approach. It's never been right. It leaves the Bible without any kind of defense. Peter tells us to make a defense for the hope that's within us. So we're supposed to be able to defend what we know to be true. The biblical word for faith is a Hebrew word, pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. And it doesn't mean wishing. It means active trust. And trust cannot be something that's magically manufactured, something that's conjured up. It has to be earned. You can't exercise the kind of faith that the Bible insists on unless you're reasonably sure that certain things are true. Biblical faith is based on knowledge, not wishing, or blind leaps. The kind of faith God's interested in is not wishing. It's trust based on knowing. A sure trust based on evidence. And there are a lot of biblical examples of it that I want to give you a taste of. And now in Exodus 3, it begins with a section of scripture that we ought to read often because it reveals truth that we've missed the first one or two or three times. Let me just read the first six verses of chapter 3 to you. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, keeping the, the flock of them, the sheep. 
And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight while the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The only reason I stopped at verse 6 is because there doesn't, I don't have time to read 16 chapters to you, and there doesn't seem to be a logical place to stop. So I just made up a logical place. God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush, and Moses is afraid, as everyone is, when they see God. The Lord says he sees the suffering of his people, Israel, and he's come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. He says he's going to send Moses to Pharaoh, so you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. We don't have to imagine what Moses' reaction is because we're told. In verse 11, it says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Probably the same kind of reaction any of us would have if God told us to go do something and we know that we don't have it in us to do that. God says he's going to be with Moses, and Moses is still reluctant to do what God said. It's understandable. Why would Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in the world at the time, Listen to someone who had fled from Egypt in fear of his life and was now returning with a message like this. And why would two million Hebrews, that's how many there were in the land at the time, and they're slaves. And why would two million Hebrew slaves <clears throat> follow a murderer, Moses murdered an Egyptian, which is why he fled from Egypt to begin with, and he had deserted them. So nobody had any reason to listen to Moses. He says, what if they don't believe or listen to me? What if they say, the Lord hasn't appeared to you? And what God didn't say is just as important as what he did say. He didn't say, tell Pharaoh he's just going to have to take it on faith. Tell the Hebrews the same thing. You just have to have blind faith. they got to have faith. That's what he didn't say. Instead, God asked, what's in your hand, Moses? And this is what it says in chapter 
4, verses 2 through 9. The Lord said to him, What's that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. With a new Bible, it is hard to turn the page. And it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by its tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back in your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak and he took it out and behold, it was restored like it, like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. God gives him signs. And later more signs followed. They got everyone's attention. The river of blood, frogs covering the land, gnats, flies, locusts, the boils and the pestilence, the hail, the darkness, and finally, the angel of death. All for one purpose, that they might know there is a God in Israel. Not simply believe or hope or wish, no. And this is no idle comment, but one that's central to the message. In fact, the phrase is repeated no less than 11 times throughout this account of the miracles that both that uh, God caused Moses to do to, to make Pharaoh let the people go. 11 times that they might know that there is a God in Israel. In Exodus 6, 6, God says he will redeem Israel with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then verse 7 reads, Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. In verse, I mean, in chapter 7 and 5, the Lord says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. In 7.17, just prior to the Nile be turn, turning into blood, he says, Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that's in the Nile with a staff that's in my hand, and it will be turned into blood. In 810, the plague of frogs has been loosed on the land. There are frogs everywhere, in the cooking pots, in the houses, everywhere. And Pharaoh falsely asked Moses, 
to remove the frogs and he will let the people go. He doesn't, but that's what he says. And then Moses says, when do you want me to have this done? And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. And Moses said, may it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. In chapter 8, 22, a plague of insects has been loosed on the Egyptians, but none on the land of Goshen where Israel is. So the insects are infesting Egypt, but not a one of them goes into the land of Goshen where Israel is. And the people of Israel lived. And why? He says, so you may know that I, the Lord, am in your midst of the land. I will put a division between my people and your people. In 914, God sent a plague of boils on the people and beasts in the land of Egypt, but none in the land of Goshen. And he said, for this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. So you may know, not guess, not hope, not think, but to know. And next there was a plague of heavy hail like there had never been before in the land of Egypt. But only in the land of Goshen where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. And in 929, Moses said to him, to Pharaoh, As soon as I go out of the city, I will spread, I will spread out my hands so the Lord, the th- to the Lord, so that thunder will cease and there will be hail no longer, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. The same thing happens with the plague of locusts in 10.2. And then later in, in chapter 14 and in 18, verse 18, after Israel has departed Egypt and Pharaoh and his army are in pursuit of the Israelites to bring them back to Egypt, the Lord said just prior to the Egyptians entering the Red Sea, chasing after Israel, he said, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them, after Israel. Then, in verse 18, he says, then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariot and his horsemen. And what was the result of all of this? Verse 1431 says, When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Why did he do this? So that they might know that he was the Lord, both Israel and Egypt. You see the pattern? A powerful evidence, in this case miracles, given the people knowledge of God and whom they then placed their active trust. First the miracles, then the trust. Knowledge went before belief in each one of these cases. God did not ask the Hebrews or even Moses for mindless faith or blind leaps or wishful thinking. He demonstrated his power, giving them a good reason to believe 
resulting in obedience. Miracles did not follow belief. Miracles preceded belief. Acts of power led to knowledge, which then allowed faith to flourish. When you go to the New Testament, we see the same thing with Jesus. In the second chapter of Mark, Jesus is at the home, or is at a home at Capernaum, which he spent most of his time. A crowd fills the house and blocks the door, keeping a paralytic, a lame man, who is carried by his four friends from getting into the presence of Jesus. The only way in is from above. The door's blocked. The crowds are so great. So they have to walk to the top of the house and dig through the sod roof, the thatched roof, and lower the paralytic down on a pallet. Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And there were some scribes there, and they were offended. They said, Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, aware of the complaint, asked them a question. Which is easier to say to a paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk? Well, obviously, it's always easier to say something that nobody can check up on. <laughs> Jesus said, but so that you may know, that you may know, there's that phrase again, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And then in the sight of everyone, the paralytic got up and went out. Jesus gives us exactly the same lesson that we see in Exodus. He proves something that cannot be seen, the forgiveness of sins, with evidence that can be seen, a supernatural healing. Jesus heals in order that we may know. Again, the concrete evidence allows the doubters to know the truth so they can then trust in the forgiveness that God, that only Christ can give. There's no conflict between knowledge and faith. Knowledge is the basis for faith. Then you've got the book of Acts. In the second chapter, where Peter gives his dramatic sermon at Pentecost, the crowd is both amazed and bewildered at the manifestations of the Spirit. Everybody speaking in a tongue, their own tongue, people from all different countries coming back and hearing Peter speak in their own language. And Peter stands up and he explains that it's not drunkenness that's causing this, but it's prophecy being fulfilled in their midst by the hand of God. He recounts that Jesus, one attested to by miracles, signs, and wonders, has been murdered at the hands of godless men. Death couldn't hold him. 
in the grave, though he, and he had risen. Not only did King David himself foretell such a thing, Peter and the rest of the disciples had witnessed the risen Christ themselves. The Holy Spirit, the gift promised by the Father, was now being poured out so that Peter's entire audience could see and hear. He then closes with a statement tailor-made for those that think that certainty somehow diminishes genuine faith. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when the crowd beholds the evidence, the miracles, the fulfilled prophecy, the witness of the resurrection, and the powerful manifestations of the Spirit that they see with their own eyes, the people are pierced to their heart. They're convinced of their error. They know the truth, and thousands believe, putting their trust in Jesus. And then you've got John. In 1 John, the beloved disciple, he brings it all together. He opens his letter with the evidence of his own witness, his own encounter with Christ. And notice how the senses are referred to. That which we have seen, that which we've heard, the one we touched with our own hands. What was from the beginning, what, the, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, and we beheld with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that we've seen and heard and proclaim to you also. Then he closes his letter like this. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's pretty clear, isn't it? You have the Son, you have life. You don't have the Son, you don't have life. No question. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So to John, faith is not a blind leap. It wasn't wishing on a star. It was grounded in evidence that led to knowledge. And then the evidence is so overwhelming as it was for the earlier, earliest followers of Jesus and many people for since then that the knowledge is certain. The record is clear from the Old Testament and the Gospels from the very beginning of the early church to the epistles. Biblical faith isn't wishing. It's a confidence 
It's not denying reality, but discovering reality. It's a sense of certainty grounded in evidence that Christianity is true. And it's not just true for me. It's actually true. It's completely true. Spiritual spiritual growth involves increasing our knowledge and the certainty of God. So there are two things there. First, knowledge, and second, confidence in what we know. So how do we increase confidence? Wish harder. Against hope against hope. Stop our ears to the sounds of critics without and ignore the doubts of the agnostic within. This never has worked and it's not going to work now. Because confidence can't be fabricated. You can't make it up. You can't conjure it up. It's got to be earned. And as we gather substantial evidence, our confidence grows automatically and our faith is deepened. Faith is not about wishing, but it's about confidence. And that makes all the difference. You get a hold of the facts. You study you learn even a little and you'll realize you're not wishing on a star but about eternal things you'll realize Christianity is true and that's what changes everything let's pray Lord again and again throughout scripture it's so we would know You don't ask us to believe in impossible things without any kind of evidence. You continually show us evidence. You reveal yourself to us in ways that, Lord, each individual knows. And sometimes we can hardly say what happened. But we look, Lord, and your word, which is life, gives us life. And the more we study your word, the more we see truth the more we embrace truth. Lord, we're just so thankful that you live, your word lives too. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts might be ever changed again and again, deeper and deeper, to put all our confidence in you. And we ask it for your glory, Lord. Amen. could sing for you now, but we took a vote earlier and Bill won by one point, I think. So. <laughs> Praise the modern day um, concern about faith is that we have kids at Crossway who 
my, my assessment is they want to have faith in their faith. And so I remind them, it's not faith in how strong your faith is. Do you have faith in Jesus? Do you have faith in what Jesus did? Do you have faith in what he said? Your faith is in him. Your faith isn't in yourself. Your faith is not in how strong you judge your faith to be. That's not the answer that you're looking for. You're looking for um, faith in Jesus and his promises and his accomplishments. And those you can look at. I mean, we have eyewitness evidence of these things. And you probably heard that uh, during the Reformation, when the, the Protestant Reformation, you know, when there was a split between from the Catholic Church and the Catholic magistrates would complain to the Protestants, well, well, where are your miracles that prove, that give evidence that what you believe is true? Where are your miracles? Just like Greg was saying, these miracles point, these signs, where are your signs and wonders that prove that your belief is right? And they, the magistrates said, those miracles and signs and wonders you see throughout, throughout Scripture, those are our miracles. When, G, when God the Father spoke to Moses, that's evidence for me. When the Red Sea was parted, that evidence was for me. When Jesus healed the paralytic through the roof that came through the roof, that was evidence for me. When they took handkerchiefs from Paul and they touched people that were sick and they got healed, or when Peter's shadow fell on somebody and they got healed, those, those are my miracles. Because that faith that they had is the same faith that, that I have. Those miracles that God did are your miracles. That's your evidence that what God has said is true. So I just thank God for that. If you look on page 60... God, you brought us out of the wilderness. 